The Deal with Yield is a podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. Tune in to episodes on iTunes, My Farm Radio, and thedealwithyield.com. Welcome back to The Deal with Yield with our two hosts, Kyle Weiner, Winfield United Master Agronomy Advisor, and Joel Whipperforth, Winfield United Ag Technology Applications Lead. Okay, so taking the findings from this past year, how can we incorporate these insights into 2017's crops? When I think about how excited I am for 2017, it's about adding that extra layer of predictability and confidence when we talk about these decision ag tools that we're thinking about the amount of information that we know today looking at snowbanks outside the window versus, uh, and I always kind of say this, everybody's a good farmer in Excel spreadsheet in January. And we'll know a whole lot more about our yield potential and what things might be limiting factors after we plant. And we'll know a little bit more after it's knee high and we'll know a little bit more after it's shoulder high, depending the price of corn and commodities on whether or not these hybrids or the varieties that you might have in your field might have a particular response to something. So I'm excited about the predictability of utilizing this data that it can bring to your farm. You know, sitting down and when there's snow out or when it's the winter season to really triage, and that's what I do with the growers I work with is, look, what is your management style? Do you want a side dress? Do you not want a side dress? Do you, when do you put your nitrogen down? When don't you? Do you want to split apply? What's your fungicide? Will you do a fungicide? You know, it all comes back to great genetics and then also coming into the springtime to figure out is the maturity that you agreed on planting the 300 to 500 bushel potential in that bag, where are you at? I mean, is the soil types good? Do you get a good stand and, and move on from there to do some in-season stuff? As you break this decision portion down, there's proactive decisions and reactive decisions. I think fungicide and nitrogen and nutrients in general can oftentimes be reactive decisions. And that's not to say that they're bad, but we can delay those decisions a little bit further in until we know more information. One insight from last year's answer plot data looking at smart stacks versus non-traded hybrids, we saw a nice yield bump, a few bushels in here, that a 4.9 bushel yield advantage by adding in uh, herbicide control. Right. One area that uh, as we look at some of the proactive decisions we need to make, we need to think about below ground rootworm protection. And the last couple of years was kind of this story of, well, it was wet early and so we drowned them all out so we didn't see high pressure. Well, last year we actually had a pretty good crop of corn rootworm larvae that didn't get drowned out, that had decent reproduction weather in August and September. And so we might be looking at a pretty healthy crop of corn rootworm larvae out there this year that are all going to want to take their bite. So we had some good results on smart stacks last year. I think the thing that we think, and Joel alluded to earlier, is water, right? Did we drown them out? Did we not? Are they present? Did they not? Running sticky traps, doing stuff this fall, they were there. They were there, and they're going to be. And spring will tell. If we get a lot of heavy rains, maybe we drown them out, maybe we don't. But how do you manage through that as the grower? Do you want to put all your eggs in one basket to go with a double pro? Do you want to go with a smart stack? Do you, what, how do you spread your risk? And the big thing is bushels pay bill. And the last thing I want to see is, is a grower make a decision based on emotional money decision to not go and plant the smart stack version and then you get chewed up 
terribly by insects like we had a few years ago up here with westerns and, and some northerns. I think insecticides can be a good addition on top of a double pro, but they're never as good as the actual trait being inside of that plant. And it's all about how much risk and insurance you want to buy down. But, you know, last year, again, our answer plot results showed that there was a nice yield response, 4.9 bushel, by having the traded hybrid out there. I think what you're getting along with that is you're getting sustainability of plant health. So it's not always about here's just the bushels. It's You start slowing that combine down from 5 miles an hour down to 2 miles an hour and dropping the head and trying to pick it up off the ground. That's the efficiency side of stuff that you don't think about when you put a plan together in, in the winter and the spring. So it's a big deal. And with the talk of Palmer amaranth in areas that haven't seen Palmer amaranth and also the harder-to-kill weeds, uh, what insight can you give us, Joel and Kyle, on weed control for 2017? I think the biggest thing in industry, we need to evaluate the size of the weeds. Size does matter. And anything below that four inches, spray early, spray often, that's kind of my thing. Or start clean, stay clean. Those two phrases, there's a lot that come out of my mouth. Whether it's pigweed or palmer amaranth or, or water hemp, whatever it may be, if you let that stuff get a foot tall, good luck. The only thing you're going to kill that was with a steel iron hole. I was in the cafeteria the other day, and I was looking at the chips on the rack, and I was reading one of the ingredients labels, and the ingredient label reads like this. Tell me if you think there's a market here, if you guys think we can make some money on this. The ingredient label is uh, chia seeds, millet, amaranth, and flax. Sweet. We get a market for this stuff. I think some of these whole grain chips, we could maybe find a market for some of these weed-infested fields that are out there can't run the combine through you can just go out and pull them and they were, they were also usda organic so I, there's, a, there's a bonus <laughs> in that but I, I think these invasive weed species they're challenging and certainly you know, i was over in michigan here and, and they were talking about some of the dairies had uh, palmer amaranth growing around the lagoons and they said well where'd that come from they said well you know the cotton seed gets put in there for a little extra protein and fat and certainly that passes right through the cows when the amaranth seed got brought in on the truck and there it grows around the lagoon so there's lots of ways that these pests can get in here and bring them back where our old boss bob shopper used to say what did he used to say kyle always bet on the pest always bet on the pest so we're going to have weeds we're going to have them. They're going to become resistant to whatever it is that we're trying against, and we're just going to have to continue to evolve past them. And if I were to ask you about maybe one thing a farmer should try this year that they maybe didn't try last year or haven't tried, what would you tell them? Boy, one? There's only one. Well, Um, it can be more than one. So I think a, a few of them to start, and, and I just alluded to it earlier, is start clean, stay clean. And if you're only using one mode of action, try two. And if you're trying to go to three, and, and if, it's not just the, the modes, modes of action. It's actually the modes that are effectively controlling the pest. It's not the same group class, not the same anything else. So it's modes of action. We don't have any new chemistries. We have to use the ones we have. And we can rotate around and and use different herbicides to help control, but there's nothing new to save us. We have to do a better job of what we do, spray early, spray often. 
I kind of echo that. I was talking to my dad over Christmas here, and, and we were talking about the resistant weeds. And he said, well, you know, I, I like to rotate in and out of Roundup, and that's my way of not getting resistance mechanisms. And you go back to what Bayer Crop Science has talked about in their resistance mechanisms, and they talked about yeah, that is one of the ways that you could prevent herbicide resistance. But if you use multiple modes of action, two, three modes of action throughout the entire chemistry year, throughout the – so your pre-emerge followed by your post-emerge, you're 83 times less likely to get herbicide resistance. And so it's not rotating fully out of the chemistry that's as important as making sure there's multiple modes of effective chemistry down there. So when Kyle talks about effective, think back to the pursuit days. If pursuit stopped working on your farm 20 years ago, the germplasm pool of weeds that you've got out there are still pursuit resistance. So once weed resistance develops, it is considered a non-renewable resource. So if you develop Roundup resistance on your farm, just know that 30 years from now, you're not going to be able to put glyphosate back out there and kill anything because those weeds will continue to produce that same breeding line. I think the other thing, uh, every day I wake up, I look in the mirror and I always go, ooh, that's not a good look. But I think in, <laughs> in spray application, I think we really need to stand there in front of a mirror and look at ourselves and go... What and how can I do better? I think a lot of these weeds, you know, talking to the regional agronomists and the educators from the colleges around, is these weeds are somewhat resistant. It's not fully resistant. There's not so. In the example I have, I had a couple of customers go, wait, look, these weeds are way easier to control this year. I thought they were resistant. How can I go out there and kill them this year? And I couldn't last year. But I think a lot of it comes to spray application. Are you keeping the pressure up as you're turning? Are you going out there and controlling the weeds before they go to four inches? There's a lot of stuff to do. So I always say, look at yourself in the mirror before you start blaming some other things. What do answer plot managers do in the winter months to plan? Well, I think they spend a lot of time vacationing. That's where I, Don't they just go someplace warm most of the time? They're in the shops. It's warm. Are they in there greasing the wheel bearings or what? They're making sure the machinery is ready to roll, Joel. Yeah, I tell you what, the answer plot crews, they like to plan and they like to make sure that all these trials are getting installed correctly. You know, there's a time for innovation and there's a time that the protocols start needing to get marched out to the field so that we can implement them. So, you know, the answer plot crews, I admire the 17 plot crews that are dispatched around the country from one central command center in Vincent, Iowa there. And they really work hard to bring the uniformity into the planting and planning progress, which allows for a really high degree of data quality coming out of there. And I know we don't often talk about incentives, but they're actually incentivized on their data quality. And so from an employee performance, you know, salespeople are incentivized on sales. Answer plot crews are incentivized based on whether or not the data quality is high. And so I think, you know, in the wintertime, they spend a lot of time making sure that their equipment has gone over, that everything's race ready for the field. But they also spend a lot of time talking with each other and communicating within their own staff, within the regional agronomy staff and the sales staff, so that these protocols are implemented with a high degree of uniformity. Look, these answer plots are no joke, Joel. They collect over 5 million data points a year. That's not by chance. That's making sure your I's are dotted and T's are crossed. And coming from Winfield United being the largest data in egg-applied chemistries in, in industries in this 
it just it doesn't happen without preparation and and getting the stuff in order to go with that so we get good quality data to provide to our, our retailers and growers. I'm always excited about the long look that they give over the span of genetic suppliers in the marketplace. I think that's the one place where you can get a high degree of replications of the best genetic suppliers in the marketplace. And so I, I'm always really excited about that. And I think about the precision that they do it on. Uh, I've been down to the bagging facility down there. They can take two 80,000 kernels bags of seed and spread that out across 400 replications. So you think about that. So maybe it's a brand new hybrid that there's really low supply of. Maybe there's only 60, 100 bags in the country. Well, a couple of those bags can go out to dealers and to plots and get spread around that way. We only need two bags of seed, maybe two, three bags of seed to actually build this industry-leading low trial error data set. We go through the answer plots every year when I ride along with them. They got every plot has a bag. And when they get to it, they dump it in and they get to the, the end. And there isn't one or two extra kernels, it seems like, in there a lot of times. So that's a new terminology for a bean counter. <laughs> How many answer plots are there? We try to keep the site numbers relevant to where we're trying to collect data. We oftentimes talk about there's upwards of 200 answer plots. Now, Mother Nature gets us every year on a couple of plots. And whether they get planted late and the data quality is not accepted that way or we get a hailstorm, it seems like wherever we move the national answer plot to, that seems to be a target for a pre-national answer plot tour hailstorm. It was pert near like a hurricane over there with the wind that we got this year. Yeah, last year it came in the week after the event. So, And you can keep up to date on the web, right, with a lot of what's happening at the answer plots? Yeah, or? you can go to answerplot.com where we keep up to date on who your local representative is, who you might need to contact and ask where you can find an answer plot event. And then you can also go on there and view some of the results over the last few years of how those hybrids are doing. So we keep that all on uh, answerplot.com. And uh, you can get there you know, through cropland.com as well if you're following through the links. So guys are moving away from traded corn. Should they be concerned about corn rootworm and corn borer and not applying insecticide? I think depending on where you are in the United States, you can, you know, that's the first thing you ask after they pick the right variety is what trait back is. What do you want traits above, below? What can you do? And, and it's kind of how much risk do you want to take? You know, what's the pestilence pressure? There's a lot of educated conversations you can have if you were prepared off of last year's corn. You could put sticky traps out and know what your pressures are been. Is it fine? You can get by with it, absolutely. There's lots of good stuff that's out there and traded in Double Pro. And you can get by with it, but year after year, pestilence pressure is going to get you. So know your crop rotation, right? The best place not to take your traits away is to go corn on corn right because you're planting right back into the residue that you're there the year before and the insect pressure that you had the year before but rotation if you got two three years if you get gaining crops you got to come after alfalfa there's a lot of different things that you can look at to possibly trade down what do you think joe when you look at the life cycle of those rootworms one of those females could lay as many as four to eight hundred eggs in the soil and if you had a 50% hatch rate on there, you've got two to 400 rootworm larvae that are within four inches of taking a bite out of a root. So imagine 
two to four hundred bites coming out of your corn root, that kind of hurts their ability to recover and go out and seek nutrients and water. So I'm uncomfortable making a blind recommendation. If you didn't measure what your pestilence pressure was last year with a sticky trap or go out and monitor it, and you've got some accurate records, I know there's some crop scouts that do a really nice job of tracking and detailing these sort of things. My sense goes towards making sure that there's good insurance out there, and that starts with the trait. The trait is always the most effective over the rootworm insecticides. But if you're going to go for rootworm insecticides, making sure that that's incorporated well into your starter fertilizer or if you're using dry boxes, that those are calibrated well. I think the other thing you need to think about is with insecticides. Insecticides absolutely work. But if we get a lot of rain, they're water-soluble, right? They wash out of the root zone where the root feeding would or could have taken place. So if we get into a dry year, we have some pestilence pressure in the insecticides there it's going to probably kill most of those bugs but if we get a lot of rain after you plant and not enough to kill the pests you're going to struggle i've had issues in some of the spots where people get steamrolled i've seen down to four bushel an acre and you could walk right down the row grab the corn plant and pull it up without even struggling with one hand so i don't want any of the customers or anybody that's listening to go through that it's a very very difficult situation to go through yeah but four bushel per acre there's a lot less trucking cost to town don't wear out tires either you've been listening to the deal with yield with our host kyle weiner winfield united master agronomy advisor and joel whipperforth winfield united ag technology applications lead for additional episodes of the deal with yield visit itunes my farm radio and the deal with yield.com 